Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Henry the Fourth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, being all the kings and queens of England from Alpha the Great to Elizabeth II. Yes. The last time we did Richard II, who was the last of the sort of direct plagenet, uh, Plantagenets, and um, he had a sort of quite a tyrannical reign, like Edward II, lots of favourites, people didn't like it. Mm. And then 1399, Henry Bolingbroke, his cousin, Duke of Lancaster, steals the throne from him. Kicks him out, and so who's up? Come on, who's on the table? So it's Henry the Fourth. Now, what do you would you feel that you know Henry the Fourth particularly the well? Um, n- no, but I hesitated there because I thought I should <laughs> do because of Shakespeare, but he's not that Henry. Well, he, he kind of is. Henry, he did a few oh, plays. He's he's a curious one, Henry the Fourth. He is a very unknown monarch. Yeah, I don't know anything about him. I'm going to be honest, nothing. Shakespeare has him. He's a major character in three of Shakespeare's history plays, oh, and. Titular, titular character of two of them because there's the Henry the Fourth Part One and Part Two, but despite that, he's never really the main character, and he comes across as this sort of slightly shadowy, never really explored in quite as much detail. Is Shakespeare? I mean, we've got all our records and stuff, mm. but so is the is the Henry the Fourth that people know from Shakespeare accurate? Well, there are some useful lines from him, but right. his character isn't really developed in the same way. And right. the reason is, he's a very controversial character for the Tudors. Dr John Hayward in 1599, towards the end of Elizabeth I's reign, apparently published the history of Henry IV, and then got sent to the Tower of London. Because she was very sensitive about it, and saw a potential comparison between her and Richard II. And apparently she said, no ye not, I am Richard II, in terms of the <laughs> analogy. Um, so as a result, the Tudors tended to sort of... and. Shakespeare sort of stayed away from him, kept him at arm's length. And consequently, yeah. he got forgotten by history later, and he's one of the least biographies oh, post-conquest right. monarchs. So nobody knows about him, so let's find out who he is. Let's go! He's born in 1367, son of John of Gaunt and Blanche of Lancaster. So he, John of Gaunt was the third son of Edward III, so he is the grandson of Edward III, Henry IV. Edward III's grandson is Henry IV. And so he's this, uh, yes, right, yeah. So he's the cousin of Richard II, the previous king. Becomes king in 1399, so he's about 33 years old. And so like Richard, he's the 16th great-granduncle of Elizabeth II. Yeah. So we know further down, so he's gone across. Yeah. In terms of appearance, we don't really have any uh, portraits of him uh, from contemporary times. Too ugly? Well, the famous one was done quite a bit later and probably isn't really a good reflection of him. The best thing we've got is an effigy which is apparently quite like him. Uh, but he's thought to be quite stocky, quite vigorous in his youth, um, but otherwise we're not too sure. We can't look what he looked like, but a bit bearded. A bit bearded, OK. A bit bearded. He has something of a rivalry with Richard II. So as he said, they're born about three months apart in th- 1367, Richard being the older one. They're the only two royal male children of that generation. The next one's about seven years younger. And they're both heirs of Edward's favourite sons. Richard was from the Black Prince and Henry from John of Gaunt. Mm. So they're sort of very much on a similar level. First meet in about 1371 and spent the next few years together until Richard becomes king. But so they've got equal claim to the throne then, really? Except that Richard is the son of the oldest son. Yeah, but he's rubbish, so, you know, go the next one down. Well, see. <laughs> yeah. So 
Interestingly for Henry, 1376, when Edward III was dying, his father, John of Gaul, persuaded Edward to settle his inheritance upon the male line only. Mm. And this meant, obviously, the first case it will go to Richard II because he is the son of mm. the first son. But the second son, Lionel, has a, only a daughter. So John of Gaunt's thinking, ah, we can invalidate that succession because it would have to go through a woman. So the next in line is John of Gaunt and Henry. So regardless that it's the firstborn's... If the, if the firstborn son has a girl then a boy, it would still go to the secondborn if he had a boy first and it was older. Mm. But if they don't have a, a boy at all and it has to go through a woman, he's yeah, saying it doesn't count. Yeah. So Henry is effectively brought up potentially as an heir to Richard okay. in John of yeah. Gaunt's eyes. Yeah. But that means he's on a bit of a rival mm. status to Richard, which Richard won't particularly like. During Richard's reign, they don't get on very well, it's fair to say. Uh, apparently during the Peasants' Revolt, 1381, Henry was in the Tower of London and abandoned by Richard when the peasants went on the rampage and were catching people and killing them all. And some of them were in the Tower with Henry. And apparently, when he's only about 14 at the time the mob at one stage were actually going for Henry because he was the son of John of Gaunt, who people didn't like. They were all set to kill him, but one guard bravely stood in between them, stopped them, persuaded them not to kill him, and he got let off. At a very early age, nearly gets taken out. Do we know any more out. about the guard? He sounds like um, the other fella. William Marshall. Yes, the one. Um, his name is John Furrow, and he will appear later on in our story. Excellent. Remember that name. <laughs> Um, 1386 to 88, when he's a bit older, there's the rebellion against Richard II by the Lord's appellant, okay, yeah. who get rid of his favourites. He joins in with them as a more junior chap, but he's a bit more moderate, so although he defeats the favourite to Vare at Redcock Bridge and sort of brings about the defeat, he tries to impose a bit of moderation on the others. So he gets upset Richard in terms of opposing him, but could have been worse right. by being really nasty. Yeah. Fairly quiet in terms of his relations with Richard for the next few years, but 1397 was when Richard II turned and decided to get vengeance and turns to a tyranny. So he killed off the senior Lord's Appellant. Oh, that's right, yeah. Including yeah. the youngest son of Edward, v, uh, Edward III, i.e. his and Henry's uncle, who was the Duke yeah. of Gloucester. So Henry now thinks, well, he's really taking vengeance. I was in league with these guys, and he isn't bothered about killing people who are members of the royal family. So Ooh, it's quite trouble. an awkward yeah, time yeah. for Henry. Then in 1398, the other junior appellant, who was uh, Thomas Mowbray, he revealed to Henry that he'd heard about a plot existing oh, yeah, 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 yeah. to kill Henry and John of Gaunt, which he said had been sanctioned by Richard. Henry's now in a bit of a panic, doesn't know what to do. He's worried that people are going to try and kill him. Tells his father, John of Gaunt, and Gaunt decides the best thing to do, go straight to Richard, the king, tell him about it, because it... From Mowbray's perspective, it's kind of treasonous to suggest that the king is plotting and that they might need to do mm. something. He tells Richard, Mowbray gets cross and says, I didn't do this, Henry is a traitor. No way of resolving it, so they decide it's going to be settled by the trial of combat. So they both line up against, they're going to have a joust, potentially to kill each other, but at the last minute, as Henry starts to charge, Richard comes in, exiles a pair of them. Mm. So oh, we thought it was a, a media thing, didn't we? Yeah, a bit, a bit of propaganda. Yeah. So Henry gets exiled for ten years, um, but in 1399, just one year later, his father, John of Gaunt, dies. And what Richard could have done, as we said, was bring back Henry, make amends, make him Duke of Lancaster and get his loyalty back. Instead, he exiled him for life and removed the Lancaster yeah, inheritance completely. Right. So Henry's position, from being potentially the heir to Richard, particularly because Richard doesn't have any children, of course, yeah. 
he is now exiled. His whole dynasty is looking in danger. So he decides he's going to come back. Fair enough. And do really. something about it. 1399, he comes over whilst Richard unwisely has gone off to invade uh, Ireland to sort out troubles there. Oh, uh, yeah. So Henry comes over with about 100 men, invades England. Makes 100? Only about 100. He hasn't got many men with him because he's in exile, obviously. Yeah. So he comes over, avoids um, the Duke of York, who's sort of meant to be keeping the realm and keeping it secure, so they don't know where he is. Makes to the Lancastrian heartlands, and then gradually the major nobles start to flock to Henry. They start to join him with their armies. Right, okay. So his army builds up and up, particularly when he gets joined by major nobles, the Earl of Northumberland and his son, Harry Hotspur. Oh, yeah. More from him later. Um, He ends up with something like 100,000 men at one stage. So it's so many, he actually has to send them home because he can't maintain such a large army. So when Richard finds out about it, it's all a bit too late. So he comes back to Milford Haven, into Wales, thinks about trying to do something, doesn't know quite what to do, facing lots of defections, people abandoning his cause, flocking to Henry. Eventually he's duped by the Earl of Northumberland into leaving Conwy Castle. Because he thinks Northumberland's there with a small retinue of men, he can dupe them and steal the crown back. Of course, as soon as he comes out, Henry comes around the corner with a massive army. And Richard thinks, oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> an, uh. So, um, Richard is captured and Henry takes him back to Westminster in triumph. Crowds are cheering Henry, booing um, Richard. And then, because he's a pious man, Henry goes into St Paul's, prays at the high altar. And apparently he looked to his left and noticed this massive tomb with a lance and a royal coat of arms, which turned out to be the tomb of his father. Right. And his mother. And, of course, he hadn't been there for the funeral. Oh, yeah. So it's the first time he'd seen it. So apparently, he, to the moment, everything that's been going on, he just broke down in tears right in front of it. Oh. oh. Right. Poignant moments. Poignant, yeah. yeah. However, he's now got the difficulty, despite capturing Richard, of actually becoming king. Which we've learned is pretty tricky. It's very tricky. Now, oddly, he claimed his legitimacy from the descent of Henry III, why not just from his... Well, because he, he could um, claim descent by another means from Edmund Crouchback, who was the second son of Henry III. So that's the younger brother of Edward I. Yeah. The reason he doesn't claim the other settlement is that apparently what Edward did in 1376 could be seen as invalid. Because, and it's all Edward I's fault in many ways. <laughs> Nonsense, don't believe it. <laughs> Edward I's will stated that his daughters could succeed him. Mm. So if the sons died, then it could go through the daughters and through their children. If Edward III could supplant what Edward I had done by saying, no, no, only through the men. Okay, so it's the the fella saying that it should... It's the guy saying it can only go through the men. Edward I said it can go through men and women. Yeah, yeah. Edward III said only men. Yeah. Richard II effectively said it can go through the women as well, which meant that Henry wouldn't have been the next in line. So if Henry says, ah, oh, Edward III made oh, yeah, this yeah, will, yeah, yeah, yeah. then they could say, well, Richard II made a will, so your one's invalid. Mm. So he claimed this rather convoluted descent yeah. from um, Henry III. A little bit of a fudge, but people were willing to go with it. Yeah, I think they could see that he had legitimacy. Yeah, it took about seven weeks to persuade Richard to abdicate. More complicated than with Edward II, because in that case, he was succeeded by his son. Mm. So he was willing, in a sense, to give it up because he had to protect his son. In Richard's case, there is no son. He's got no real motivation to be uh, compliant. Yeah. But in the end, he loses heart, gives up. His resignation letter is read out in Parliament. Henry stands up, gives a speech, claims the throne. 
people go along with it. Job done. So, massive coronation on the feast day of Edward the Confessor. Claimed that he was using sacred oil given to him, uh, given to Thomas Beckett, rather, by the Virgin Mary. <laughs> That's fudging history of it. Indeed. And, uh, but apparently not such a good omen, because the Chronicler stated that apparently when the oil was poured over his head, lice started running out of his head. <laughs> So that's horrible. Very unpleasant. So, Henry is now king. Right. However, from this point on, things get rather difficult for poor old Henry IV. Mm. He faces a wealth of rebellions. Scotland causes problems in 1400 by making raids on the border. When he, um, he goes up to deal with them, they do the usual trick of just running right. off. Yeah. Um, France refuses to acknowledge Henry as king because they see him as a usurper. And there's also controversy over what to do with Richard's bride. Because remember, Richard II had married the six-year-old daughter of the King of France only a few years earlier. And now here she is, widowed. Henry tries to marry her to his son, Prince Henry, but the French aren't having any of that. And eventually, after great expense, sends her back. But the French still kick out problems. They intervene to help with invasions from Wales and everywhere else. So they're needling him a little bit. 1400, he faces what's called the Epiphany Rising, where some of Richard's um, supporters, some of the nobles who supported Richard, plotted to kill Henry and restore Richard, who was still imprisoned at this point, to the throne. So how long has he been in prison at 1400? Um, He was 1399, so he's been in prison for a number Mm -hmm. of months. Thankfully for Henry, the plot is rumbled, he avoids being killed, and there's no popular support for it whatsoever. So actually, before Henry has to do anything, the public, in effect... Yeah. come into play, capture all the nobles, execute them. Really? Yeah, before Henry gets any of this. Um, however, this does lead Henry to realise that it's too dangerous to keep Richard II alive in yeah. prison, so he accedes to him being murdered, probably through starvation. Oh, yeah. That's horrible. Very unpleasant. So anyway, Richard II is now dead. Is there any reason why they starved him? Why can't they bash on the head? Didn't want any blows... Um, or wounds on his body, so they could say he died of natural causes. Right. Similar with Edward II, they couldn't be seen. If you had a, like, a massive axe wound in his head, yeah. it'd be hard to say. Got oh, no, just accidentally... Uh... <laughs> sat on that poker. Yeah. Um, what, a bit of poison, maybe? I'd go poison. Maybe that might have disfigured him, his face, mm, in some way. Because they show the body to prove that he's dead, of course. That's why they have to not have any marks on him. Because mm. people would see it. Anyway, Richard II now dead... Big problem for Henry is a chap called Owain Glendower. Oh, yes. Legendary um, Welshman. A small border dispute with um, an English lord manages to spiral into a massive national rebellion in which Wales gets a huge amount of independence. Owain crowns himself as the Prince of Wales. And it's only really later that Prince Henry, future Henry V, his son, pushes them back and ultimately defeats them. But it's a big problem throughout the reign. Harry Hotspur, we recall, the son of Northumberland, helped Henry out at the start, but he gets upset because he's trying to deal with Wales at the start, feels he doesn't get sufficient reward from Henry, sympathises with Wayne Glendow, and ends up rebelling against Henry in- instead, so he sort of switches sides. He's what? He didn't felt he didn't get enough support... Um, uh... He didn't felt he didn't get enough um, respect for putting down Wales. Enough respect, enough support, enough money, enough reward. Oh, I didn't realise he was fighting. Glory. OK, right, yeah. yeah. Um, so he fights against Henry in a massive battle in 1403 at Shrewsbury, mm. which very hard fought. The plot, the basic ob- objective was to kill Henry. Mm. So it's really everything turns on this. Hotspur is the one that gets killed. Henry's victorious. 
Close, Very closely fought, as we see later. And there are still further rebellions, even after this. Um, there's a thing called the Tripartite Indenture in 1404, which so is an agreement between Owain Glyndour, um, Edmund Mortimer, who was the uncle of uh, one of the rival claims to the throne, from the sort of second son of Edward III, and the Earl of Northumberland, who was the father of Harry Hotspur. Yeah. They agreed, basically, to partition England between the three of them. So they're going to kill off Henry. Oh, England, I would get Wales and lots of the West. Northumberland would take the North and then uh, Morton would sort of yeah. take the Middle and the South. Again, came to nothing. Rebels get dispersed and killed. Henry's able to see it out. So, by sort of 1408-ish, he's actually managed to be fairly secure. Scotland has Wales had kind of been brought to heel. France ends up being busy with its own internal conflict when someone there gets killed mm. and they have the same problems as England has. So they're bothered with their own stuff now, not bothering England so much. Rebellions have been put down. The major rivals have been either defeated or captured. It's all fairly secure. Yeah, OK. However, unfortunately for Henry, he doesn't really get to enjoy the security very much because from about 1406, he's increasingly seriously ill. Oh. Maintained his sanity throughout, but kind of like the Black Prince, he's increasingly disabled. So he stops being able to ride his horse, stops being able to walk properly. And he suffered a really horrible skin disease. Apparently there was a festering of the flesh, dehydration of the eyes, and rupture of the internal organs. Dehydration of the eyes? Yeah, so he's, he's really disfigured, his eyes are horrible. He's, he's got like little raisins there. It's really Oof. unpleasant. So... As a result, in 1410, his incapacity means that there's actually a council has to, in effect, take control because he isn't well enough. He's almost at the point of death. Have, has anyone suggested what it might have been through modern... Not ways? really. At the time, they called it leprosy, but that's possibly not quite the same thing yeah. that we would call leprosy, so they're not entirely sure. Um, so there was a council set up, but this caused a few internal divisions because he appointed the Archbishop of Canterbury, his strong ally, Thomas Arundel, to head it, but Prince Henry, his son, felt that he should be the one running the council. So there's a bit of conflict there. Henry, Prince Henry does ultimately take control of it. But then there are rumours of saying that Henry IV should abdicate in favour of his son, rumours of plots, a lot of tension between father and son. Henry Jr. actually ends up coming to London to defend himself and protest his innocence. And actually at one point makes this speech in front of Henry IV Holt gives him a dagger and says, my life is not worthy, you should take my life or I'm innocent and I would never do anything against you. Which apparently is a very emotional moment and Henry IV again weeps, embraces his son, airs cleared. But again, no time to enjoy himself for Henry, unfortunately. 1413, he finally dies, aged 47. Can I sum up man. his reign in one word yep. so far? Mm. I mean, it's going to give away my Rex Factor. Disappointment. Hmm. It is, and even his death was disappointing. Apparently there was a prophecy that he would die in Jerusalem. So he thought, I'm going to die in the Crusades, I'm going to be a king, a warrior king, a hero. Actually he died at the house of the Abbot of Westminster in the Jerusalem chamber. Mm. Clever. Yeah, clever. Um, yeah. So that's it, 47, um, he uh, has died. No, I think that's why no one knows anything about him. Well, we'll look into more detail, maybe there'll be uh, more to respect about yeah. him when okay. we look at each factor. Battleliness! Quite a lot of good stuff for Battleliness. Before becoming king, he has a very respected chivalric upbringing. Mm -hmm. So as I said, unlike Richard II, he's really brought up, effectively, to be a king, more or less. All the kingly virtues very much exhibited. So 
He's cultured, he loves music and literature, speaks and reads fluently in Latin, French and English. So he's a very educated man in this sort of proper chivalric, cultured, renaissance way. Jousting. He's very proficient at this. Apparently he was first recorded jousting in tournaments at the age of 14, which is the youngest ever documented, even younger than the Black Prince. Oh, right. His so, uncle, right? Yes, his uncle, yes. indeed. 1389, apparently attended a magnificent tournament in France, uh, amongst a hundred other English knights, with these three legendary French jousters who basically challenged all comers and said, you know, you have to try and go five lengths with us. Lots of people didn't manage it. They're really, really good. Henry goes ten lengths with the champion French oh, wow. lancer. And apparently French chronicler, writing about it later, picked Henry out alone of all the like, hundred knights. He was the one picked out as a, a star jouster. Excellent. So he's got a very good reputation there. 1391, he joins the Teutonic Knights going on crusade in Lithuania. Sorry. Indeed. <laughs> it does take a double take, this one. The Teutonic Knights were a sort of band of knights who sort of helped protect um, Christians going on pilgrimage. Mm. Lithuania at this time um, wasn't Christian. So anywhere that which isn't Christian is sort of worthy of a crusade. So it's not just going to Jerusalem, it's sort of going off anywhere and dealing with those heathens. Right. So he goes along there, helps out in the siege of Vilna, doesn't really accomplish very much, but he wins a lot of prestige for the fact that he has actually fought somewhere on yeah. crusade under yeah. the Christian banner. Right. The next year, 1392, he goes on this massive tour and a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem. He goes all across Europe. Yeah, he's ticking all the king boxes, he isn't is. he? He actually goes to Jerusalem, first yeah. English king to actually be there in the Holy Land for a very long time. Along the way, he meets all these great rulers like King Wenceslas of Bohemia, <laughs> of, the, yeah, uh, of, fame. of yeah. the fame, and the brother or something, I think, of Anne of Bohemia, who was Richard II's first woman. Right. Um, also, Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller, another yeah, they're cool. crusading group, and the sort of Count of Milan, all these big people. So he's got a really strong reputation all across mm. Europe and the Middle East as this chivalric, crusading, jousting, noble, cultured man. King. Kingly. Basically, yeah. everywhere except England, he is respected as the great kingly figure. And that, and so Richard giving him all the grief at home. Yeah. Doesn't wear very well. Doesn't wear very well at all. 1399, we should give him a decent amount of credit for the fact that he successfully invades and deposes the anointed king. That's true. And how many times? That's only happened three times so far? Well, I mean, if we discount conquest and battles, like the Vikings and the Normans, yeah. it's only the second time. The only other time was with Edward II. Okay. And, of course, in that case, there was an heir to the throne to give them strength of a claim. In this case, he's exiled... And he's only got sort of a hundred men with him. It's it's quite a brave thing to do. Yeah, it's only the second time the crown's gone sort of sideways. Mm. So, yeah. So well. you give him due credit there. Yeah. Pulls okay. that off. Yeah. The rebellions he puts down lots and lots of them. So Wales they bring them to heel. Scotland, although that initial campaign didn't go well, again they are brought to heel. He even ca has captured and imprisoned the um, young King James the First of Scotland. Oh, right. who then later fights with um, Henry V against yeah. France. So he's yeah. got him there. And um, there are lots of other plots and rebellions against him. Constant stream, really, from 1400 to 1405, but deals with him, he survives. Mm. And that's not unpopularity, that's just because he's new. I mean, unpopularity definitely, yeah. but because he's new. And there's rivals, and yeah. okay. the fact that he's a usurper means that there's a chance to take advantage of him. Okay. So a lot of success there. The biggie for battliness 
is the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403. Yeah. I thinking, if this was the Saxon chief, you're going, yeah, 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 but I want a big battle. Here it is. This is a big yeah. battle. Effectively, like the battle he didn't fight in 1399. Yes, yeah, yeah. He had to do it here. So, prime purpose, as we said, was for Harry Hotspur, wanted to kill off Henry, and then... Himself. Maybe, I'm not sure if he would have been able to claim the throne. It might have gone to um, the Mortimer but child, who was from an older son, but he would have been in control of him. So, he, Hapsburg is the headstrong um, son of Northumberland, formerly supported Henry, but as we said, grew effect, mm. disaffected, lack of rewards. Apparently, Tottenham Hotspur are named after him. Really? Apparently, that is the case. I don't know if it's really true, but there's plenty of Google evidence <laughs> Tot- to suggest. Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, right? And yeah. no, no connection to North London then? Not as far as I know. No, okay. Um, there are about 11,500 troops for Henry IV, about 10,000 for Harry Hotspur, so it's fairly mm. evenly matched. And it was meant to be a guaranteed bloodbath because we've got English longbowmen who did so much damage against the French in the Hundred Years' War. For the first time, they're fighting against each other. Yeah. So it's not the case where one has the archers and the other doesn't. It's, yeah, it's joint, full yeah. barrage against each other. And Hotspur took his ground slightly up an incline, which meant that Henry's troops were going to have to attack up. So it's up into the arrows, which is, of course, what the French suffered when they tried to take on England at and Cressy and Poitiers. if you're firing uphill, mm. you haven't quite Triple, got the angle right, yeah. on the uh, arrows, yeah. So, guaranteed bloodbath. Sure enough, Henry's vanguard commander, the guy that leads the first assault, and the Earl of Stafford, he gets killed, troops decimated by the constant mm. stream of arrows falling on them. They flee amidst this onslaught. So, at this point, Henry has to sort of step in, orders his main troops to charge up the middle, while Prince Henry attacks the right flank to try and distract the archers. And um, we've got some quotes here from Chronicles describing it. Love this it. is the Brute Chronicle. It was the heaviest and unkindest and sorest battle that had ever taken place in England. And then some more. And it was horrible to hear the groans of the wounded who ended their lives miserably beneath the hooves of the horses. So it was so densely packed, dust swirling around in the fighting, that those who were wounded basically got trampled on. It's a really horrible, horrible battle. Prince Henry himself apparently very badly wounded by an arrow that struck him in the face and left him permanently scarred. An arrow hit him in the face? Yeah, if we think back to Harold II. Yeah, this is the way to go. It's very, you can so easily happen, so these small margins hang... So is, I mean, how do you get an arrow in the face and not die? Well, it's it hit him sort of, it came it. kind of below his eye, right. where there's quite a bit of bone there. Yeah, yeah. So it sort yeah. of went in there. Crumbs. Very, very nasty. Um, Henry himself, Henry the Fourth, the king, um, accomplished very well. And King Henry, with a loud voice, began to exhort his men to do well. And throwing himself into the battle, did many a fine feat of arms, so that on both sides he was held to be the most valiant knight. Probably a slightly biased <laughs> opinion, but he's got already this reputation for being a really strong yeah. military man. Harry Hotspur sees things are going against him, decides on one last charge. So he gathers 30 knights on their horses with lances and they charge to kill Henry. Henry is fighting hand-to-hand, not seeing what's going on. Thankfully, somebody else sees it, gets Henry to move back, and he gets far enough back that basically the charge gets disrupted, runs out of steam. And then at this point, Hotspur opens his visor just to get a bit of air. And again, arrow straight away oh. in the visor, kills him instantly. God, grief. You just don't, just don't do that. Indeed. So Harry Hotspur dies. Battle is over. Victory for Henry IV. But as you've seen, such close fighting and the 
fluke, really, of being in a medieval bathroom living when it's that yeah, intense. That's what I can't understand. All it. those arrows going over all over the place. I mean, there must be an element of skill to it, clearly, because all the trained knights do tend to do much better. Mm. And I guess they can afford the armour. Yeah. But in, as you say, a total melee, he's fighting someone. There's nothing to stop. Uh, just a random peasant with a dagger just coming up behind him, straight yeah. in the seam between the armour. This was mad. But he survives and he wins the battle. Yeah, well, well done this man. I think that's, So it's a lot of very good. impressive stuff. Yeah. On the negative side, as you said, there was Scotland where he initially went off with an army to deal with it and then, like Richard II, had to turn back because he didn't find anyone to fight and there was nothing to eat. That wasn't such a great start. He doesn't really proactively do a lot in Scotland. It's more of the northern lords that yeah. sort them all out. The biggie is Wales and our England Dower. Mm. They really have, he really has a lot of success. So the early period, 1400-01, is a border dispute with the English lord Grey de Ruthin. Um, apparently, Owen's appeals to the English courts got ignored, and then Grey gave him very late notice to supply troops to go and fight to Scotland which meant that he didn't do it in time, and consequently, as a vassal mm, lord, yeah, Henry, it was like, oh, traitor, he didn't supply the troops. Yeah. So we have um, a rebellion, a national rebellion. Of course, Richard had quite a lot of support in Wales, so there's a lot of people ready to be upset with Henry. And along with Tudor brothers. From Pembroke. Indeed, the Tudors just appear yeah. into our story. Um, not familiar names, but anyway, these brothers launched with uh, Owain, they launched guerrilla warfare, and then much of the north and central Wales ends up under Owain's control and a lot of sort of banditry in the south of the country. Then in 1401, the Battle of Mindhidigan, Welsh, I apologise, um, an English force of about 1,500 spotted a sort of 500-strong army of Glendowers, took them on, but 200 English were killed and got chased away by the Welsh with lots and lots of archers. So it's the first open battle victory for the Welsh against yeah. the English in a very long time. Henry launched lots of campaigns into Wales, but achieved very little with them, because he didn't learn Edward I's tactics of not taking them on in their own land and just trying to fight direct. See, He didn't do it, and he yeah. didn't have any success at yeah. all. He should learn from the legend. Learn from the legend. Battle of Tuthill, um, Glendale was flying a flag bearing a golden dragon on a white field, which was symbolic of Uther Pendragon legendary king, father of King Arthur. Oh, so right. he's very much now getting the symbolism oh, of yeah. Arthurian legend, effectively saying, you know, I am like a new Arthur, I'm going to deliver freedom for Wales. Because they were trying to claim Arthur before, and so mm. he went and to put... He reburied his yeah. bones, didn't he? Yeah. In Parliament, Harry Hotspur urges them to negotiate with Glendower, but Parliament's having none of it, in law, enforces really harsh laws preventing Welshmen buying English land, buying arms, buying... Um, lots of things intermarrying middle ground gets destroyed mm. so the Welsh push on and from 1403 Glyndale becomes a real threat to Henry he wins the support of Harry Hotspur wins the support of the uncle Edmund Mortimer uh, 1403 lots of villages and towns submitting to him as he progresses through Wales captures castles of Cardiff Newport and Carmarthen Right, yeah. No, that's pretty major castles. Comes close to capturing Carnarvon Castle. Really? With the support of the French. Crikey. And now setting troops yeah. in. 1404, he captures Aberystwyth and Harlech castles. And then at Harlech, he's crowned Prince of Wales, announces plans for a Welsh Parliament, a Welsh Church, two national universities, then negotiates that tripartite indenture 
where he was going to mm. get um, Wales up to the Severn and the Mersey. So that's including Cheshire, Shropshire and uh, Herefordshire. So lots of yeah. English land as well as Welsh. Then 1405, the French send troops to Milford Haven. And they push on through Wales, march into England, and then they face off with Henry IV at uh, Worcester. And for about eight days, it's really on the edge where they might have oh, a battle. I know this one. and he just and, But Henry just waits, because mm-hmm. he knows he can just... They're on foreign soil. They're so, on foreign soil, yeah. they haven't got the supplies. Mm-hmm. Henry waits it out, and then eventually they withdraw. And it's a big what-if moment. If they'd had a battle at that point, the French mm-hmm. and the Welsh, and defeated Henry, mm-hmm. what who if? knows what could have happened. Yeah. What if, but it didn't happen. And then, indeed, the Welsh ultimately get defeated. 1406, they start to suffer defeats. English troops land in Anglesey via Ireland, they're starting to push them back. And Prince Henry is now given much more direct control of dealing with this. He'd been there for quite a long time already, but Henry IV now lets his son deal with it. And what Hen- Prince Henry does is change his tactics. So rather than lots of direct military expeditions, he just takes control of the big castles, sets up economic blockades. Yeah, sort of does them Edward the first. Exactly, he yeah. does the Edward the first tactics, gradually pushes them back, gets rid of their supply line, and it works. And from about 1412, basically, um, the Welsh are defeated and Glendower disappears. Mm. Never to be seen again. Lost to the hills. Well, yeah, but he's he's never captured or betrayed, despite huge ransoms. And he goes down as a legendary figure. So he's apparently the last Welshman to claim the title of Prince of Wales. In um, when the greatest that hundred greatest Britons poll about sort of ten years ago or so, he was twenty uh, third mm. highest replaced Welshman. And um, he had you know a statue unveiled by David Lloyd George. The Manic Street Peaches did a song about him called Fourteen O Four. Legendary man. Yeah. And Henry the Fourth didn't really deal with him very well. No. It was really Prince Henry that dealt with him. Certainly I know more about Anglinder than I do this this Henry the Fourth. So anyway, we've got a lot of success for Henry the Fourth, but some drawbacks as well. Yeah. Um it's a very mixed bag. It's a big big open battle, like that. Well done. Yeah. But Invades, takes the country, yeah, great reputation, the crusade, the jousting. But it's got to be on his, on his, on his time as king, including mm. his invasion. But ultimately he wins. Ultimately he sees off all the rebellions. Yeah, yeah he does. He does, yeah. But he it's not going to be one of the greats. For he military. doesn't win the heart and mind though, does he? Mm. He lose own green door to do that. Yeah. Um, but there's not really much bad. As you say, he does ultimately win. He just mm. doesn't... He struggles through rather than mm. conquers gloriously. Yeah. I'm thinking of six. It's clearly better than bad to mediocre, but it's not up in that upper echelon of I think a, Yeah, I think that's a really good score. Um, but we never discussed these beforehand, just for yeah. anyone said anything, but I do think I've got to agree. It's got to be better than five because, as you say, he wins. Mm. But mm, 6.5, and his point five is for his Battle of Shrewsbury. There we go. 12.5 for battling this. Not bad. Scandal. Plenty here. He is a usurper. Oh, yeah, I see it. I he deposes the yeah. king, goes against yeah. the social order of the country and, you know, European order. After the Epiphany Rising, of course, he sanctions the murder of Richard II, so he's technically got a bit of regicide as good. well as yeah, usurpation. Yeah. As you saw, it's still a major sub- taboo subject 200 years later under Elizabeth I yeah. and the Tudors. So that's proper scandal. I mean, Shakespeare had to even be careful. Like, the deposition scene in Richard II was often not performed at the time. 
and there was a rebellion by the Earl of Essex, where apparently they performed the play the night before. So oh, even Shakespeare right. had to be quite careful, like, I'm really, I'm not involved, I'm not saying anything by writing this play. I'm just, just history. But that's how scandalous... That is proper scandal. This is very false, really ruptures everything. Well, it's, it's over five. And more than that, though. You asked me earlier in the week, what's his uh, Thomas Beckett moment? Yeah. And I said, well, he deposes the king. But what he also does... 1405, there was a plot by um, Dukes of Norfolk and Northumberland to move the Mortimer boys, who were the children from the second son of Edward III, um, to Windsor, to Wales, uh, from Windsor to Wales, so they'd be a figurehead for deposition, and then they were going to kill off Henry, mm. etc. Henry catches them in person and brings the boys back, but they were supported by the Archbishop of York, um, Scrope is his name, um, who apparently posted manifestos on church doors accusing Henry of murdering Richard II, which, fair enough, and um, levying false taxes that he promised not to. Norfolk is executed, but Scrope, the Archbishop of York, is also executed. He kills the Archbishop He kills an Archbishop. And unlike Henry II, who, of course, it was a bit less direct, a bit of a grey area, this is proper... Yeah, this, as is him executed. this is worse than Beckett. And even though you could say, well, Scrope is completely guilty of treason and plotting to overthrow and kill Henry IV, which is maybe justifiable, yeah. nevertheless, it's a major scandal to kill an archbishop. Stuns Christendom, not just England, but everywhere. It's really, whoa, that's big. That is huge. This is a massive score. Dude. So hang on, what does he do with those kids? Are they not the children in the tower? They're not the children in the tower, no, so that's quite right, a bit later. He okay. just takes them back into custody. Mm. Just come with me. He's like the child catcher. Indeed, except that he doesn't do anything untoward. There's no more scandal involved in the books. <laughs> okay, let's point that, that out. That's that's still huge, but nothing. No, no sex. No sex. Unfortunately, no um, scandal in his personal life. He was quite uh, well. He was all business, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. He did it on a national scale. Um, that's really big. What did we give um, Henry II, sorry? We gave him 17 and a half. I'm going to give him an 8, I think, Henry IV. I think it's, it's pretty big. The thing with um, the Archbishop is that he actually maintains the support of the Church despite this. Yeah. So it could have been worse, I suppose. Well, what, but did Henry II have any personal scandal? Um, he had sort of mistresses and... So he had that on, on him. So I'm just thinking, if I went... I'm going to go nine, mm-hmm. uh, and that takes him to 17. 17. Yeah. And if Henry II got 17.5 because he had a bit of um, hanky-panky in there. I was thinking hanky-panky is the word that you were going <laughs> to <Yeah>. use. <laughs> so that's 17 for scandal, a very good score. Mm. Subjectivity. This is where we really see the two sides to Henry and the difficult stuff. On the good hand, he had a reputation of being a very merciful and moral character. So at 1388, when he was um, rebelling against Richard II for the first time with the Lords of Pelland, he actually then spoke up in defence of um, some of the people that were being tried. So he was impo- trying to impose moderation, particularly Simon Burley, who was the tutor of Richard, who was ultimately executed. But Henry stood against his allies, spoke up for what he believed in, wouldn't be pushed aside. Yeah, Very mm. nice. 1399, he actually resisted calls to execute Richard there and then. He said, no, 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 he do this properly, go through Parliament, he will be imprisoned. So although he does execute him in 1400, that's only because there was a plot which made him think, if I keep him alive, it's just going to happen all the time. Yeah. So he did actually show yeah, mercy initially. And if we call the chap John Furore, that guard who saved his life, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
1400, he actually um, was part of a rebellion. He was one of the figures that rebelled against Henry, or rebelled for Richard why? II. I don't, um, don't really know why, but he, he obviously changed sides, yeah. or supported who he thought to be king. But when he was arrested and he saw Henry, he reminded him that he was the guard that had saved him. And Henry recognised him, released him, and pardoned him. Because he didn't forget. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that's eye for an eye business. That's all right. Um, he lets a lot of other people off in 1400. Not that many get executed. Yeah, that's all right, I suppose. Parliament, he has pretty good relations there. He's willing to negotiate with them, takes criticism from them, but is quite pragmatic to make sure he keeps the support, gets things done. In contrast, Richard II, very narcissistic raged against people, mm, yeah. lost their support all over the place. Henry, much better relationship. But how does this reflect on the on the people? How do they how, how did they benefit in his reign? Is well, it just we'll, trying to, okay, we'll come to, to that. Peace. The other thing with him which we give him credit for is the survival, which we did partly through battleliness, but also subjectivity, we give him a bit of credit. 1399, he came back from exile to take the throne. And then when he dies, the kingdom is secure. And Henry V, his son, is able to come to the throne without any real bother or That's quite, outbreak. That counts quite a lot, doesn't it? Which you think, from what yeah. he, all the trouble he had in his reign, deposition and yet People accept his son, stable yeah. succession. Yeah. So some credit there. However, there's a lot of bad for subjectivity as okay. well. Rebellions aren't a good thing. The fact that he put them down is good, but it does mean that there's not a lot of stability in the country throughout this period. And increasingly, there was a more violent response against the rebels, more reprisals, such as you know the execution of the Archbishop of York. He yeah. becomes much more hardened and less merciful as it goes along. A very controversial character was his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, who we mentioned before. Um, he'd been exiled under Richard II, brought back by Henry, and became a very close ally, important in keeping the support of the Church. But... Henry was indebted to him, and he passed Arundel's statute directed against those who thought damnably of the sacraments and usurped the office of preaching, i.e. Lollards, or people they thought were heretics who didn't comply with proper Catholic teaching. And the act that they passed was called the De Heretico Comburendo, or in translation, regarding the heretic who is to be burnt. Indeed. Those saying diverse and false and perverse people of a certain new sect wickedly instruct and inform people and commit subversion of the said Catholic faith, this wicked sect should from henceforth cease and be utterly destroyed. So this is the first time where we have in statutes burning of heretics. This is where it starts, under Arundel. And shortly after it's um, enacted in 1401, William Sawtree becomes the first um, man, first Lollard, to be burnt for his beliefs. Crumb. So people weren't burnt for other crimes at the time. This was the, this was the first time it was enshrined for heresy. This is for heresy. Rarely enacted, to be fair, in the reign, and it stays pretty low until we get to Henry VIII and the Tudors. Uh, but it's not a very good legacy to leave. And indeed, Arundel was voted by BBC History magazine the worst Briton of the 15th century. It is horrible, isn't it? It really is. Mm. That's not a nice thing no. to have um, put into law. Parliament, although it's good that he's negotiating, he has to negotiate because he's in quite yeah. a weak position. 1399, he came to the throne making grandiose promises, saying, I'm not going to levy taxes, I'm going to live off my own means, I'm not going to impinge upon the people. Very popular, but impossible to live up to. Because mm. to fight off all these rebellions, it costs a lot of money. And indeed, he has ten treasures in 13 years who failed to balance the books. 
meaning that he was always having to go to Parliament struggling to get taxation from them. Why is this? Because the rebellions? Because it costs so much to raise armies to yeah. fight everybody off. And he's got Scotland, Wales, within England, France are invading, sort of Calais and Aquitaine, which he has to support. It costs a lot of money. Yeah. And apparently it's so bad, in 1401 he received a message saying, there is not enough money in your treasury to pay the messengers. How did he get there? <laughs> he was off after that. It's <laughs> yeah. the last one. Then. Yeah. Um, a commons take advantage of this. So they attack his household costs, attack the grants made to his followers. 1401 and 1404, quite a bit of humiliating criticism where they really restrict his powers to raise money. Yeah. So he's under the thumb of Parliament because he isn't able to get the money. Right, okay. So that's not that's great not, that's for not productivity. That's a bit... And ultimately, you were saying about what does this mean for the people, he becomes quite unpopular. So it's, it's sort of something of a sort of Tony, Labour, new La- Tony Blair, New Labour sort of thing. 1997, where they came in really, really popular, yeah. everybody loved them. Henry, 1399, hugely unpopular when he, popular when he invades. Um, a contemporary uh, chronicler, Jean Creton, said, had the Lord Jesus Christ himself arrived, he could not have been greeted with more pleasure by the citizens. He's bigger than Jesus. Yes. John Lennon. John Lennon. Um, so he comes in, everybody loves him, and he makes the promises he's going to rule with mercy at home, but win military glory abroad, sort of Edward III model of kingship. All first. All first. <laughs> Promising brilliant things, everybody loves it, 1997 again, but once in office it proves rather more difficult than And he used everyone bankrupt. Indeed, it will, yes. Yeah, indeed. So rebellions, the magnitude of the deposition meet and the murder of the Richard II leaves people to think, oh, this is a little bit yeah. dodgy, actually. And Henry becomes more and more repressive to deal with it. He becomes more and more unpopular. Plots to assassinate him, including one to smear his saddle with a poisonous ointment. So that apparently within... Poisoned his bum. Yeah, so apparently within ten miles he would have straightened up Richard and just died on the horseback. Um, found out, survives. 1402, a woman in Hertfordshire complained that they hadn't had seven days of good weather since the usurpation, yeah. three years earlier. So there's this real sense that it was bad, it was a bad thing to happen, and he is tainted by association. You could say, Graham, that the uh, Arundel's burning law was like the uh, Terrorism Act. Ooh. A bit, a bit of satire. And, of course, we've got his illness. He's increasingly an invalid um, in his later years. So from 1410 to 11, he's basically removed from government because he's literally can't How long do it. 1410 to 11, where there's a yeah. council in place. And this leads to a bit of conflict between the Archbishop and his son, Prince Henry. And, you know, it's, it's not great that for a lot of the time he wasn't really able to actually... Yeah, and he died in 11. And he died in 13, 13 ultimately. Okay. So, some nice stuff, some good tribe, but once he becomes king, it's a real struggle. Yeah, I think I think this this um, all the good stuff tends to be before really, mm. and as a result of his him being a usurper, mm. so he had to work with Parliament, but then he had to work with them more because he left everyone bankrupt. Um, and then there's just lots of bad stuff really. Mm. He struggles. Uh, I said he's a man of two halves. That up to the point of being king, it's all great. Yeah. But when he becomes king, it's we've seen that so many times. People who are good out of power and then they come to power and they're, they're stuffed. Yeah. Nick Clegg. Yeah, it's all over the place today. Um, although he did leave a stable succession. But he did manage that. Um, which in my eyes takes him to a four. Mm-hmm. I, oof. I'm going to give him a four and a half. I think he's just short of middling it out. Mm. I think he tries hard. He's some good stuff there and the fact that it's all stable by the end is quite a strong achievement. He had a difficult... 
thing to deal with, but it still wouldn't have been very nice. And ultimately, he there's not much going on, and he leaves the citizens broke, burnt, and bored. Indeed. <laughs> so that's eight and a half of subjectivity drops down there. Yeah, poor. Longevity. 1399 to 1413, so that's 14 years. Yeah. Which is sort of all right, but it's... Um, it's not great. In fact, it's the shortest one we've had since uh, King John. So it's mm, a lot of long done. reigns that have uh, been brought to a halt there. Dynasty, not the program. He has five surviving children. Pretty good. Just doing bad, yeah. and four of them are sons. That's very good. It's only including, of course, Henry V. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. The daughters, um, the surviving daughter, became a highly respected queen consort of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Oh, right. Which is also quite impressive. Yeah. The sad thing, um, his mother, his wife, the daughter, he had a daughter who died during his reign, and in fact the daughter that survived him, they all died in childbirth. Oh, dear. Very sad. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so that's five for Dennis, which is pretty good. That gives him a total of 57 points. Which is better, he'll be pleased to hear, than Richard II. Indeed, ten points better. And it's better than quite a few. It's not a bad uh, yeah. score. But we must now decide whether or not he has that mark of greatness, the legacy, the great achievement, the star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! Disappointed, Graham. Well, I mean, as as we've basically just said, it's that two halves. Up to the point at which he becomes king, he's dead on to be Rex Factor. Chivalric hero, respected across the world, jousting, great stuff, deposes a tyrannical madman, everybody loves him defeats all these rebellions, secures the succession. No, it goes to... But... Pot. Yeah, can't live up to his promises, spends the whole time sort of putting out fires rather than actually proactively yeah. doing anything good. He doesn't have any time to actually do anything. And then, of course, Wales, of course, when he had that duty of success. So... Yeah. No, no. It's, it's, um, it's unfortunate for him. Yeah, you, some people just can't cut it as a king. And this but, is what we're here to find out. Here's a few, uh, a few little tidbits for you. Would Henry V have done any better if he right. had had Henry IV's circumstances in 1399? If he had had to invade, depose, put down all the rebellions, would he have been any more successful? Henry V? Yeah. If you reverse them in time, yeah. would they be the other way around? Because Henry IV is so great up to the point, and it's all very difficult, and then Henry V, the problems have kind of been dealt with. So you could say it's circumstance rather than ability of Henry IV. He's dealt quite a difficult... He's got the illness and he's got rebellions. Mm. Um, and he's got... And he's just a bit weird. Burning people and killing archbishops. Mm. Shakespeare quote, which is uh, very good in this case, uneasy is the head which wears the crown. Yeah. See, that's old shaky. Gets good old right shaky. That, that summarises him. Up to the wearing the crown yeah. is great. Once it's on, it's all very difficult. So... It's a yes or no. We both have to say yes, Ali. No way. And it's a no for me as well. But I think I, I think you know we've. Um, I think I like him a little bit more than you. I think yeah. he 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 had a difficult job, partly by his own making, by deposing the king. But you know he survives it. I I think we've been away from Rex. We've had a dynastic holiday. We come back. People want Rex. I <laughs> give them Henry the Fourth. Unbelievable. <laughs> so that's a no for Henry the Fourth. Doesn't have the Rex factor. Um, but. Let's catch up, of course. What Henry IV does, his real legacy, is to disrupt the idea of an unimpeachable monarchy, the idea that you can remove the king. Yeah. We have 
the semblance of the beginnings again. Yeah. The Wars of the Roses. Okay. So, how's everybody doing in our... Family Fortunes! So, it's all a little bit confusing, lots of intermarrying. The easiest thing at this stage, rather than thinking about the Lancastrians, the Yorkists, the Tudors, that hasn't all quite formed yet. Okay. So, if we think of it in terms of who are the big royal families that are vying off with each other. Oh, I'm um, shoot. So, we've got, easily... The Lancastrians. They're the big boys. They're the big boys. They're in charge. Henry IV was king, first Lancastrian king. His son, Henry V, takes mm-hmm. over. Lancastrians are the ones currently ruling as monarchs. Mm-hmm. We then have the Mortimer family. These are probably the closest rivals for the throne. Yeah. So they're descended from the second son of Edward III. So we've got, alive in 1413, a chap called Edmund Mortimer. He's about 22 years old. And he's got the next strongest claim to the throne. Okay. If not slightly stronger than Henry V. So he's a big rival. He's going to get the knock on the head, I reckon. Well, let's find out next week. Um, we also have the Yorkists. These are descended from another one of Edward III's sons, who was the Duke of York. They, their descendants, marry the daughter of the Mortimer family. So then we have the link between the second and the fourth son of Edward III. And the son is called Richard, Duke of York. Born 1411, he will become a major player quite a bit later in the period. Not so much under Henry V, but under Henry VI, Mm. Richard, Duke of York. Because that's the Yorkists. We then have the Beaufort family. These are the slightly illegitimate descendants of John of Gaunt's third marriage. So they're sort of Lancastrians. But he married the wife after having the children. Right, okay. That's why they're a little bit dubious. We've got John Beaufort, a son, who is that sort of direct male line, and also Joan Beaufort, who's the daughter. And she marries a person called Ralph Neville, which is another very powerful noble family. So thus the Neville family now has some royalty attached to it. We also have, distantly, the Tudors. Mention them today, still a bit of a distant, obscure, but powerful Welsh noble family. But at some point, they're going to come along and link in with these guys. Okay. At the moment, they're just chilling out in Wales. At the moment, just chilling in Wales, biding their time, mm-hmm. but they're getting ready to join us. Okay. So lots of uh, different families. They all intermarry. But what this means is that while we're stable with Henry V in terms of the succession, there are a lot of people there who could at some point choose to rebel and claim the throne. Okay. So it's tricky to manage. We'll see how well Henry V does it next time. He does. So that's where we are. Next week we'll be doing Henry V. Perhaps a uh, more successful... Well, let's hope. Do you know what I'm going to remember from this week? What are you going to remember? Dry eyes. Well, it's something to leave uh, our listeners with a thought on. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, at rexfactorpod. Like us on Facebook. Facebook. I'll send you the link. Or leave a comment on the website. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.